Oi. 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 IGA is shopping nights. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express. There's nothing quicker. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Hello from beautiful Bunurong country. We are coming to you from the ancient Karam Karam swamp lands on unceded Kulin Nation land. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're having a couple of technical difficulties at the moment, so we're very sorry that our live broadcast has been delayed this evening and we are back online live now to you, which is excellent. And we're also sounding a bit better tonight, a bit different, because we've got new microphones, which I'm super happy about, super excited, and a huge thank you to all the sponsors and supporters of the station, to Kingston City Council as well for really supporting our work here at Radio Carum and a massive shout out to all the volunteers on Radio Carum whose hard work and effort and grant writing has made this all possible and has given all us broadcasters a much better sound. So super stoked and stoked that we're back live online broadcasting to you all across the world. So without further ado and no more delays this evening, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's conversation partner, Kingston City Council's Deputy Mayor, Councillor Chris Hill. Chris is a local dad who grew up in Melbourne, Bayside suburbs, and after a long stint living in the UK and Europe, he moved to the city of Kingston 18 years ago with his Danish wife and two daughters. Chris discovered his passion for community advocacy when chairing Save the Edgy and later Kingston Save Our Streets, and this ultimately led him to run for council in 2020. Prior to being elected, Chris worked in the exhibition industry for more than two decades, managing trade and consumer events across a range of diverse industries, including the World Skate Masters and the Melbourne, Sydney, Perth and Brisbane home shows. Having been a resident at UK's first major carbon zero housing development, BedZ, Chris is passionate about environmentally sustainable design and the need for more social and affordable housing. He knows through his own experience that the benefits of creating more sustainable communities go well beyond the energy savings. Aside from his work on council and spending quality time with his family, Chris is a fourth-generation Saints Tragic who loves all things outdoors, especially trips down the coast with his surfing mates. Welcome, Councillor Chris Hill. So glad to have you on. Thanks very much, Alana. It's uh, it's great with the, that we got there in the end. <laughs> we got there a little a little hiccup this evening, but we're on. We're on live, and uh, I think we'll run probably till about maybe quarter past eight this evening. That's and then, fine. And then we'll get off the airwaves. Just a and- shame you probably had the least tech savvy councillor here in front of you this evening. <laughs> no, an absolute pleasure to have you on. Look, let's jump into the first question. 
And what I really like to ask everyone on this show when they come on is, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? I'm going to skip between a couple, if you don't mind. By all means, please. So, uh, and the sort of just the reason I was thinking about this, and um, my parents had us, I'm one of three boys, I'm the youngest, and uh, when I was born, we were living in um, uh, housing commission flats in what was then called Moorabbin, and... um, uh, nowadays it's Hampton East, so it's the, the flats that you'll see along Bluff Road there in Hampton East. So that's where I was, uh, well, living very briefly when I was first born. But then we moved to um, – the way the Housing uh, Commission worked is that people would put their names down on a list and then I think it was pretty much like a lottery and they would draw your name and depending on where your name came out, you were allocated to a particular estate somewhere, anywhere throughout Melbourne and it just so happened – that we ended up on the Pines in Frankston. So, um, and I lived there till I was six years old. So I have, you know, pretty distinct memories of, of growing up there. And um, and that was great. And, you know, I, I think back and it maybe is the start of my, or maybe the part of the reason why I have this great appreciation for social affordable housing, um, because my parents were the beneficiaries of, of um, you know, being able to bring us up in a house where they might not have otherwise been able to afford to. Um, But then I'm thinking like the first time I really remember a a building or a house actually really connecting with one, uh, with with a building or a house that is, Um, a mate of mine when I was probably about 13 moved to this, all I can say is just like a really cool mid-century house in Frankston South. And um, it was one of those classic mid-century houses that was on a sloping block so um, it was single level at the level that you walked in, but then it kind of dropped down the hill. So it sort of went down, it was split level. So went went down half a level. Classic mid-century. Yeah. Oh, it's, and it was incredible. Um, you know, we lived in a nice enough house and, you know, it had all the things you needed. But I, I don't remember actually feeling anything like being in a building, but I just would walk in and it was light and bright and it was just a happy place to be and, you know, I can now look back on it and think of architecturally the sort of features that that house had that I probably didn't really appreciate at the time. But, you know, it's, you know, the floor-to-ceiling windows and the north and north aspect. and um, There's things that create a feeling around the space. Yeah, yeah. You know, nowadays, you know, real estate agents will forever go on about light, bright and spacious and all of that. Um, but, you know, the mid-century architects really knew what they were doing when they created those homes. And, yeah, this is just a great example of one. And, um, yeah, probably, you know, without knowing it, it sort of set me on a little bit of a journey maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe also your journey of, of conservation because we have so much um, mid-century modern in Melbourne, uh, across the city of Kingston, a lot in the city of Bayside yeah, too. Um, and many of which has already been sold off and redeveloped and others groups are fighting fighting to save. Yeah. And you have your own experience of fighting to save a building close to your height. You chaired Save the Edgy. Yeah, that I did. The Edge the Edgewater Hotel. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty remarkable, beautiful building in this um classical Italianesque Italianate style. Yeah. S- some uh, commentators have called it a bit more Spanish, but it's perhaps those details on it yeah, that capture people's imagination. It's a really important building, but it, it's important for its fabric, you know, the, the way it looks, 
but it's also important for the function that it serves as well. Um, you know, the fact that it was uh, open in the late 1880s, um, you know, so for, geez, I think it amounted to, um, you know, maybe 130 years thereabouts functioning as a pub, you know, weddings, parties, um, all, all sorts of events. And, you know, this was the thing when I was chairing Save the Edgy, so many people made contact with me and other members of the committee just to share their own personal story and their own personal connection to the building. So, you know, it, it just goes to show that a building can be much more than just bricks and mortar. Um, the connection that people have is real. Absolutely. And, um, you know, when a, when a building is publicly accessible in the way that a pub is, um, yeah, the, the, the way that people connect and, the, and just the vast number of people who actually connect with that building. That's the joy of public work and public buildings and those that have a civic presence is that they become universal for everyone. Yeah. Anyone can enter it. Yeah. If it's designed right, if it is safe and inclusive and accessible, yep. then it's a place everyone can come. Yeah. What made you fall in love with the edgy, the Edgewater Hotel? Look, if I go back to my very earliest memories, it was uh, the, the first times I remember going to the pub. I might well have gone before then, but the first times I remember going to the pub, I was sort of maybe about 19 or 20 um, and there was a bit of a pub crawl that would happen along the beach road. So you had the Mentone Hotel a bit further up the road, the Bowie. Um, there was the Sandy, but the, the pub crawl never seemed to for some reason so much take in the Sandy. Um, you had the Red Bluff and then further up you had the Hampton as well. But these were all period hotels that were along Beach Road. So, um, But Mentone was at that point in time anyway kind of different because it was – you know, largely a live music venue. And so I saw some great bands at the time, um, bands like Hunters and Collectors and the Sunny Boys. Um, you know, that would have been, at a guess, around about, you know, 87, 88. Wow. Then, and, and I still remember the Wednesday nights. The Wednesday yeah. nights at the Edgy were really big for uni students. They were. And everyone, uh, you know, that younger generation tells me, you know, similarly, like like we had a connection, our generation had a connection to the pub, which is ongoing because I was still going to the pub right to the days it, it was closing. Um, but I know younger people had had that connection with the Wednesday nights. That last night at the edgy party, people lined up at 4pm. Yeah, I was, try and get I, was, I was inside, so. You were in there? I, I, well, I wasn't, I wasn't at the, in the disco. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was in the pub with a mate and, um, and then I stood out on the road and Clark Martin uh, you know, gave a speech and basically it was a call to arms for local people who were going to stand up and do what they could to fight to preserve the hotel. And you helped get it listed on the Heritage Register. Yeah, so um, it, it all sort of came about. We we had a meeting. So we had that meeting on the last Wednesday and the following Monday a community meeting was, was um, called at the Mentone um, Bowling Club. A bunch of people turned up. Um, I remember my wife saying to me as I was leaving the house, you know, I was – busy my, my daughters would have been I think 11 and 15 at the time and um, my wife said to me as I was leaving you know for Christ's sakes don't put your hand up and take on any any roles you know and uh, when I came home and she sort of said how to go I had to fess up and say that uh, it, it went well but I'm the chair of the new newly formed Save the Edgy Committee. That's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I never even could have anticipated at the time would be an ongoing sort of role that I'd sort of 
be responsible for for the next four years. An know. advocacy shoes you'd really step into. Yeah, and it was, you know, like it's a big responsibility. So many people have such a connection with these sorts of buildings and to chair a committee whose role is to try and, you know, protect the hotel, but it was multifaceted what we were trying to achieve at the pub. So, um, yeah, it, it's a big responsibility that wasn't lost on us and, um, you know, had a great bunch of people and we worked really hard. And, yeah, we got it on the Heritage Rest Register. But I do have to sort of um, mention too that, it was with the support of the owner of the hotel because had of the owner not been supportive, we might have gotten a very different outcome. Um, also, the local member at the time was a, a guy called Murray Thompson, um, who was the local member for Sandringham for decades, I, I seem to remember. Um, but even the then planning minister was Matthew Guy. Um, everybody kind of came together with Kingston Council as well. And, um, you know, between... It was all- a bipartisan effort. Yeah, I was look, looking up at the old statements, the old press releases, um, the old details of it, and everybody rallied. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the likes of Tim Richardson, um, you know, Dan and Morty Alec was really, really supportive, as was Mark Dreyfus um, also. So just really it was bipartisan. It, it just everybody wanted to save the Mentone Hotel. Um, we had a big, big group on our Facebook page, which was, I think, you know, in excess of 12,000 people at the time. Wow. So, yeah, it was it was a big community movement and, um, yeah, you know, like we, we – the first thing that we did was um, – it was really interesting. Uh, just going back one step, Clark Martin, who's now a councillor at uh, City of Bayside, but he'd sort of been on a few – well, he'd sort of been part of a few fights to save some pubs and unsuccessfully. And one thing he was really bullish about when we first started was that we just have to have really clear – objectives and there can't be too many like we've got to keep it simple and so we we right at the start set out our objectives as being to you know protect the heritage of the hotel to fight in a, inappropriate development on the site and then to try and deliver a publicly accessible bar um within the building at some point in future okay. so um that kept us really on the straight and narrow so that's all we were really it's so important to define the problem Yep. And define the mission you yep. need to charge for, especially when there's there's so much sometimes divergent energy. Yeah, and totally. And, and you know, 12,000 people gave us a, a huge voice, but it also meant that there were lots and lots of different opinions within that group as well. So, and, um, you know, we always had to sort of check back and say, okay, we could do that, but how does that get to help us to, to where we're going we've only got three boxes we're trying to tick here absolutely how does it help us tick one of those boxes on this show before we've talked about the importance of understanding that progress and movement and a common direction needs to happen regardless of whether everyone necessarily agrees a hundred percent yeah with with the outcome yeah this might be a really great moment to also mention that as always listeners you can text into the studio the number is zero four nine three. 213831 if you have any questions for Councillor Hill tonight. I'm sure he'll be more than happy to answer them all. What were some of the challenges of running such a long campaign as well? Uh, Well, probably the length of the campaign. I don't think any of us ever sort of imagined our wildest dreams that we, you know, it, well, the, it's a long the, fight through the heritage system. Yeah, the last piece of the puzzle, which was, you know, an agreement that we made in a in a VCAT compulsory conference, 
was uh, 2018, I think it was from memory. Um, yeah, I think it would have been 2018. Um, you know, at that point, uh, you know, it, it was nearly four years had passed, at, you know, from, from woe to go. And so trying to keep people motivated, um, which meant that you needed downtime. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't work at 100% full strength for that entire period. So we had to have accept that sometimes things just went flat and went slow and we just had to, you know, go with the peaks and troughs and the ebbs and flows of... That's a really important point. Yeah. That rest is radical Yeah, really sometimes and that it, it, things all look like they're charging ahead but pacing yourself in any long project is yep. really important. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that and saying that because I think more people need to hear that. Yeah. You don't just clap your hands and everything magically happens. No, no. Certainly not with architecture, not with buildings, not with planning. And I've had people contact me who are either part of a community group or wanting to start a community group and they sort of um, are interested to hear my experiences and any advice I can give them. And I, I've certainly learned a lot through um, Save the Edgy. And What's your top lesson? Look, I, I, I think we probably touched on the two top ones you know, right now, because for one, these fights rarely are anywhere near as brief as what you hope and maybe imagine they will be. They often do go on for much, much longer. So what do you need to do to to stay the distance? Um, and But I think really that, that first one that Clark shared with us around, you know, have really clear direction as to what it is that you're trying to achieve. And the, the importance of that and, and, you know, talking about what some of the difficulties were, what some of the key difficulties might have been would have been, you know, all the divergent voices that were within our group, even within the committee. You know, we had people on, like, really quite ideologically opposed to one another and yet we were all... We came together we for were the all same aligned. common goal. Yeah, exactly. But it did mean that at times people would have had far, you know, different ways of dealing with a particular problem for instance, but, you know, what we were able to do, because we had this real simple um, core message of as to where we were trying to head to, we could always just bring it back to saying, great, how does that help us, you know? Absolutely. With the heritage, the um, overdevelopment of the site or delivering a pub back to the people. And straight to the point as yep. well. I'm always interested in the outcomes and the, really the magic that sits at that moment of the common ground. Like what does everyone have in common in this yeah. moment? And everyone may have different views and different ideas and different affiliations, but what's the one thing that can bring us together and 12,000 people got together about the Edgewater Hotel, which was really amazing. Yeah. And there's even like amongst all the stories, I've read that there were a number of rumours. Did you did you hear some of the historical rumours? Uh, around the tunnels and yes. that sort of thing? I've got to be honest, I still am undecided. As Whether to, they're real? Yeah. So these are some of the rumours for our listeners that have, that have come up that when uh, doing a bit more reading into the edgy, that there was a tunnel from the beach to under, from the beach cliffs under Beach Road to a dungeon below the hotel and supposedly it was used for nefarious activities including smuggling contraband liquor and other pub goods. And um, the historian writing for the Kingston page at the time says, that's impossible. Another one 
was that the Kilbreda Bridgeline nuns once had the Mentone Hotel as their headquarters and there's all these salacious uh, details and nuances about what could have possibly taken place. And that, that, But it's true that the nuns did live in the hotel in 1904 but only for a week because uh, they had just moved out of their previous tenancy in Echuca and their new, colli- their new um, premises at the Coffee Palace where their order was going to move into was still being settled. So the nun story is probably not true either, but we, we love a tale. What about Black Monday? Apparently January 31st, 1938, the pub ran out of beer. I know, that, that one did horrify me too. Is it verified? I've, I've heard it enough places that I think there might be some truth to it. We've just had a text come in. Mm. Hi, Chris and Alana. Chris, I believe the Blue Mountains Council Mayor in New South Wales wrote to all residents owing Airbnb properties to consider putting them back on the rental market to increase supply and 80 properties were bought back. Can Kingston Council do the same? We need to increase rental supply. And this one has come from Claire in Edithvale. Okay. Um, Straight to housing. Yeah, great question. And we are sort of discussing the whole thing around Airbnbs and, you know, other short-term let um, sort of platforms as well. Um, at the moment we're like it, it, it sounds like I'm deflecting to some degree, but we're always subject to um, the greater powers that be, you know, which in most cases is sort of state law as opposed to, to um, our local law. But look, I, I think it's really relevant. It's not like we've, we've, actually looked into it within Kingston and the number of properties that we have, you know, on the short-term let market in Kingston isn't as great as you might expect. There are other councils where it's a really significant problem. So, and no, no, probably great surprise that it's, it tends to be the, you know, kind of more the, you know, the weekend break destinations and, and those sorts of places where it's really genuinely putting a strain on the local rental market. Um, and, uh, you know, when you hear about people who work, uh, within the, you know, within a particular municipality and they're living in a tent in a caravan park because there simply is no housing, you know, when, like there's affordable housing that we can talk about, but when there is literally no housing supply, full stop, um, you know, these are the sorts of problems we are going to have to, um, face, uh, so even you know saying that whilst it maybe isn't such a big problem within Kingston right at the moment, it's not to say that we don't need to be really conscious of it and to you know plan for the future to make sure that these aren't sorts of issues that that we need to really um, struggle with within Kingston because I'm a you know a great believer that everyone deserves a, a roof over their head and a place to feel safe. Absolutely, it's a it's a human right, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well. Since we've been segued, and this is live radio, people, we love questions, keep sending them in. We've been segued onto housing. Tell me, what was it like living in a zero carbon development? And what, firstly, what does that mean, really, for, for what it mean to you? And what, what does it mean um, for someone who's just a resident there? What was the day to day like? Um, look, I think the thing, when you talk, because it's easy to just sort of look at the fabric of the building and, you know, the, these houses where we where I lived, it was in the south of London, basically on a on the old road that would have taken you from the south of London to Gatwick Airport. 
um, since then they built you know motorways and, and stuff but that was the road that that we lived just off and um, there was a greyfield site and uh, the way that the European Union uh, uh, funding grant funding worked was you know they had sort of boxes to tick and you you sort of accrued points and you know the more points you accrued the more money that you could tap into from the European Union and a big one was because this was built on an old greyfield site um, that helped them accrue more and more points and basically without that grant funding it just simply wouldn't have been viable to build the development of bedzed um so but there was a a group called um uh bioregional who had the had the brains behind this new fandangled um zero carbon community development and then um they part uh, partnered with a an architect called bill dunster architects and then they did deals with a community trust um uh, called peabody um who brought in that um social affordable sort of element um to the development as well so uh it was just such a you know like so many great minds came together to make this vision a reality and i was just fortunate enough to be one of the first residents to to actually move in there well i say i my family and myself yeah we we bought outright our um our townhouse that we moved into right when it first opened um, how many townhouses were there there were 100 dwellings in total and were they mixed scale so the totally, mixture yeah. of bit bedroom numbers and yeah so there was um studios the studios were pretty generous by sort of london standards anyway um but then there were yeah studios one two three and four bedroom all within this this development um we had um electric car charging points this was um, 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah, we had uh, fibre optic to our houses so that it made it easier for people to work from home. Um, again, you know, you think we, we had sun spaces. So within our um, townhouses, we actually had a sun space at the front of the dwelling. So you walk. What's a sun spacer? I've not actually heard that before. So basically, you walked into what was a sun space, which was double glazing. Oh, like a sp- sunroom. Sunroom, sort of like a sunroom. Like a conservatory. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, so it was double double vaulted ceiling and then you walked through another set of double glazed doors into your home. So in effect, you had quadruple glazing between the outside world and the inside and that space sort of acted a bit like an airlock into the home. And then on the rear side, so that was... I the love s- airlocks. Yeah, <laughs> So that was the south. That was the south as, southern facing aspect, and then the northern spacing, uh, facing aspect was triple glazed. So their southern facing is a bit like our northern facing. You know, that's what captures all the sun. Um, it was super insulated. It, you know, it had you know green roofs, um, but we had these wind cows. People often refer to it as tap, Tully Tubby Land because they're these colourful wind wind cows on the roof that um, drew fresh air in and, and pulled the, the stale air out. But there were heat exchanges so that you weren't lead, losing terribly much um, heat in those air exchanges. And, and getting fresh air and in. And getting fresh air in. So I, I think, you know, we would go away for a weekend um, when we were living at Bed Z and leave the place locked up. And you'd think like of an old older property here, you'd probably lock the place up, come back and it would, st- it would smell musty. Mm-hmm. In spite of this place being super insulated and, and like real minimal leakage of the building, when you came back, it just smelled like. So I I laid a um, 
an engineered timber floor in the place. When we came back after a weekend away, it just smelled like freshly cut, cut timber. Wow. So the quality of the air was incredible. That's continuous supply fresh air through a heat pump for you. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was just really nice. We had a um, – so the some of the, the, the glazing units actually incorporated um, solar panels in them as well, like PV cells. Integral photovoltaics. Yep. So, again, I remind people that this was 20 years ago. This, you know, it just makes you realise that. We have all the tech now. We've got the tech. We've got, we've got everything we need to do. Yep. And, it, and it's all possible. Yep. And just a quick question on BZ. How about your power bills? Uh, they were hardly anything. Zero. Well, I wouldn't say they were zero, but they were dramatically less than. So, we were in a one-bedroom flat that was in a converted uh, Victorian school. Um, prior to moving to BedZ, and I think they went, they dropped by like sixty or seventy percent, even though the the, the BedZ home was twice the size of the flat where we'd come from. There we go. Sometimes the sustainability argument isn't enough, and the tech isn't cool enough. Yeah. But I think when people look at the bottom line and and consider that their bills could be near zero, just from building better. Yeah. It, it really sells. The uh, phones are running hot. We've got uh, more questions oh, wow. coming in. I, I, firstly, I, I, sorry, just in finishing on BedZ too, the, the one thing, I, the one point I wanted to make too, like they talk about it as a zero carbon community. So that's where I say it's it's more than just the actual fabric of the building. It's about um, the, the community that you're creating as well. and, and um, Connection to place. Connection to place, connection to each other. Like, you know, our girls were really young. In actual fact, um, my youngest daughter was actually the first bed Z baby because um, there was a bit of a baby boom whilst we were living there, you know, with all the new families that moved there. But, yeah, our youngest daughter was actually the first baby to be born at bed Z or whilst we were living at bed Z. Um, but, you know, just that's, that connection to your community that you don't necessarily get or, you know, you, it's not a given. And, um, and it's designed. It's actually it's, designed. It's designed. And we... We would just like go to the movies and there were any number of people, like friends who lived within the development who would just put their hand up and say, we can, we can babysit, you know, just practicalities like that. It's like, lovely. There's yeah. everyday things. Yeah. The, those everyday things that make up 80% of your life at the end of the day. Yeah. And it makes you feel that much more connected to um, not just the building that you live in, but the community that that building's part of and, and you know, obviously the people around you. I think those stories are also really important to talk about if we advocate for these um, type of developments and this type of housing and the, those are the sort of ideas and the moments that we need to carry across to people. Yeah. Because yep. stories get the idea across, yep. not, not so much the, the tech savings. I really want to ask this next question. Um, Claire has continued messaging us. Thank you, Claire, for your first question and again – She's really keen to have get this one through. It's would council consider houseboat options? They are immediate and safe, she says, and wouldn't be for everyone, but a great and low-cost option. Many European cities have river housing and Kingston has some great river ways and marinas. I'd have to take it on notice because I'd have to work out what the um, complexity is. But I, the details I, of the houseboat. Yeah, but I, I'm – there are – so many ways of t- delivering housing, you know, like it doesn't just have to be in a traditional context. I've been doing consulting work for a company called Passive Place and um, Passive Place's plan is to create 
again, sustainable communities, but using um, modular, demountable units that won't actually, you know, they won't look like the sort of hawkers you see in a, in a caravan park or that, that type of thing. But, um, you know, really, you know, ultimately to the passive standard, um, but, yeah, you know, really livable spaces that, you know, because often councils and government, we might have land that we might have a future purpose for, but it may be that there is a 10-year window where that isn't able to be realised. And to think that that land just sits there, we've got all these housing, you know, issues with affordable housing. And to have sort of options that you could actually come in and satisfy that, that need for a period of time, um, you know, and you're not really losing anything because that land's not really serving a purpose right here and right now. Absolutely. And you could use it for like crisis response housing or immediate housing. Yeah. Because that sort of critical intervention or critical support housing for the first 20 something days up to 90 days of taking someone off the street and helping rehabilitate them versus more long-term housing or social housing and affordable. These are all very different types of housing as well, which listeners may not be across. We've only just sort of started broaching into this topic on on this program that they all serve very different functions. So perhaps Claire's houseboat idea could work for that crisis response for 20 days, 21 days, up to a month, a few months to support people to get that healthcare to move forward um, into more stable. And I, but I think too, like people would be, don't, don't get me wrong, there is, you know, land is at a premium in Kingston, it, you know, very much is and um, we know all too well. But by the same token, what's not usually taken into account with that equation is just land that has a future purpose but we don't have a purpose for it in that shorter term. And people with future potential. Yeah. Right? It's so, about giving homes to people. Yeah. Who yep. need to yeah. the, the place the fundamental security to, to realise that future, right? So I, I just think there's some really great opportunities that we haven't even dived into yet. And, um, you know, I'm certainly keen to, to look at that and have a conversation about, you know, what it is that we can do, that, like to think outside of the box because, you know, if we rely on just the kind of the conventional model of development, you know, that's been going on for a long time and we, and we still have this problem. So what more can we do? And we've been generating ideas on this for a really long time too, actually. I did a design studio at RMIT University many moons ago while I was still studying and, uh, and Dr. Peter Brew was running a research project in parallel looking at this crisis housing, right, taking people straight off, to the, off the street short term, rehabilitating them, as we need that the frequency of an ATM, about one in a hundred Imagine how often you see an ATM in the CBD. Yep. And the sort of architectural premise was that it needs to be another type of housing or another type of home. And he called these other homes. But it's the idea that it's a type of house we haven't even come up with yet. Yep. It's absolutely important to, to continue that open mind and open thinking. I wanted to ask, you recently joined a group tour through Nightingale, Nightingale Village up up near Brunswick um, and Austin Maynard's Park Life Development, which we've also talked about on this program. Wanted to get your thoughts. What did you think of that apartment building? Look, for me, it was it was quite familiar. Um, like Bed Z? Uh, yeah, I, and I spoke like I, Andrew Maynard 
um, along with some other staff of, of theirs, um, took the tour and I was speaking with Andrew and I was able to say, you know, look, a lot of this, you know, what you've built into these developments, because we went to Terrace House as well, and a lot of the um, the aspects that they've sort of... The, they're fundamental. They're integral. They're not yeah. up for discussion. No. They're in there. And look, it was it was an interesting method, methodology too. Like if you have a look at Terrace House, they actually brought together the community, almost like a, um expression of interest type model. They brought people together and then together with the community, they actually designed you know, what would become Terrace House. That's under the Nightingale development model. They yeah. have this kind of early buyer input, early consultation piece yep. where people sort of agree, yeah, we're happy to share a communal laundry. Yes, we want a rooftop courtyard. Um, the buyers are all pretty much ready to go and then they de- they develop it. Yep. And, you know, things that really, you know, really resonated with me as well is, you know, often with a, especially the more contemporary apartment developments, you know, you, you go up a lift onto a level um, it's more like a hotel in that, you know, you've got a straight corridor, you've got doors off to each side. I hate those gun barrel corridors. And and it was so different, like whether we talk terrace house or or um, park life, you know, there was these great spaces that I, I think are more akin to just a more conventional home as opposed to an apartment. Now, they were apartments, but there was this... Um, Amenity. There was a amen- usability. There was a usability and and you could see how it would connect neighbour to neighbour as well in a, in a more comfortable sort of environment, um, which I think is really, really important because you want to be at home with your neighbours. And they have all these communal spaces and function spaces that people can book out or use and yep. come together across. And, you, and you know, they've incorporated all the eco um, uh, aspects as well because if you have a look at, um, you know, the Natas rating, I think um, – I think uh, Terrace House was around eight and a half uh, stars from memory and uh, Park Life was over nine, you know, so that really, really exceptional. Um, but probably a bit like Bed said too, it's not done in a way that all I could say is when you walk into those properties, they just feel nice, you know, that there's nothing about them that you think are kind of somewhat kooky off the wall. Um, Restrictive. Yeah, you know, they, it's the the architecture that they've applied and the way they've laid the apartments out and, the, you know, the, the way they face the orientation of the apartments and all of those things, it just makes it feel like a beautiful place to live. And that's what good design is and good design does. Yeah. But everyone deserves that beauty. That's uh, Yeah, I couldn't agree less. So, um, <laughs> I could Sorry, I couldn't agree more. It's, um, it's genuinely, um, I, I think we've got to look at that uh, because it's not, you know, like we would love to have apartments that have that boast all of the, you know, I guess the things that we saw at those developments when we did those tours. But as well, you know, of course, you know, we, we have so many developments being delivered throughout Kingston and, you know, we're always really conscious of the fact of just trying to make sure that the amenity that's being delivered to the future residents is, you know, something that we, we aspire to. So is the, do you think the city of Kingston may be looking to push um, to support this sort of development model? Because it, it's it's quite um, different in, in a way that it's an architect-led developer model. There's also more ethical developers in the market like Neo Metro. Um, fieldwork architects have a 
branch that also does development under a similar model um, that not only tries to really deliver that high quality design outcome to the consumer and people that are purchasing, but also ensure that it, it is better building stock. Yeah. So do you think there's a place where council can help support those developments coming in? Yeah. Yeah, so look, you know, I, I guess I've got to start by saying at, you know, at council we can't make developers do something that's outside of the code. Um, but, you know, but what we can do is we can encourage, you know, developers to come in and to speak with us and to let them know what's important to us as, as a council and, and hopefully we're reflective of the interests of our community when we do that as well. And, um, and it was just really interesting to have that conversation with, with Austin Maynard because I think, you know, our assumption is that they wouldn't have an interest in Kingston because, you know, they primarily um, uh, develop in these inner city sort of uh, municipalities. The funny thing by meeting with them and by having you know further discussions with them, they actually thought that King, a, a you know, middle ring municipality like Kingston wouldn't be interested in having a conversation with them. You never know till you talk, right? You, you never know. So, you know, the good thing is we are we are talking, and you know, as I said, we do have council-owned um, sites around Kingston, and um, you know, some of those just simply wouldn't be appropriate uh, for. For the sort of development that we took, that we're discussing, but saying that there are sites that are, you know, maybe even starting with because the, as well, Austin Maynard did um, the development in Brighton as well. I think it was called Slate House from memory, and that was a slightly smaller scale of of you know what they did in Brunswick, and um, so you know that we've certainly got sites of the scale as to what you know where they've delivered Slate House in Brighton, for instance. So. Is council considering entering the development market as a community housing kind of supporter or a provider? Or? I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but like the, it's sort of interesting when you actually speak to because I think what the problem that we have is that we as a council and probably you know developers and architects, we have our preconceived ideas as to what the what the roadblocks are going to be, and um, suddenly you have a conversation, you find out that it's completely different to what you expected and so uh, I know you know it, it can be really simple in that um, we might have a council patch of land but there may be ways like do we even have to necessarily sell the land you know could we maintain the ownership of the land and have a lease type arrangement over the land for instance um, there's other there's other ways of if it is selling the land but the blocker for them is to have to you know cough up that money right at the front end of the pro- project you know they know that the, they'll be able to balance the books in in the fullness of time over let's say the the develop the lifespan of the development is maybe five years from conception to delivery um you know to actually have to uh commit to that you know big financial outlay right at the start so you know these are the sorts of things that we might find through discussion are actually the big roadblocks but that's the sort of thing that we maybe can assist with and that might be the difference between getting a really you know, awesome market-leading development to Kingston versus you know, it just simply not being able to happen because it's not financially viable. Absolutely. And potentially maybe even supporting good design 
streamlining the process through planning yep. as, as well as always a, an avenue, isn't it? A real, a really interesting sort of part of the conversation we had with Andrew Maynard when we were at Terrace House, I, I remember, was that they had quite a bit of trouble getting it through council, That's that first development. And um, ultimately, you know, they it, it took a lot of, like it, I think it was a number of years of negotiation to get everything through. Um, when they built it, it, it really triggered other like-minded architects and builders to be building similar things. And now what's been explained to us is that that sort of raised the bar up to, you know, it's pretty much the developments are, you know, eight, eight, eight star plus. And it's elevated consumer expectations too. Well, well, they said that it's sort of raised the bar to a point that it's actually no longer commercially viable to, to deliver anything less in that local area. You know, so it's just shifted. So that's where I say, you know, we have the actual, you know, the local, local building regs and, you know, the planning schemes, et cetera, that we're working to. But sometimes there are other powers at play, you know, given that, you know, builders, developers are working within a commercial sort of constraint. Yeah, but I think people shouldn't say that those in Kingston would not be keen because as I'm learning through doing this radio show that we have such interesting people in the local area with such diverse backgrounds, such experience, such curiosity that you really don't know until you have a conversation. Yeah. And to say that they somehow wouldn't want um, such an amazing place to live in, yeah. it's just kind of unfair. Yeah. Like, just don't say that people like don't understand well, if you, because if, that's what it is, right? It's like yeah. coded language for they just don't get it. Yeah. But people absolutely do get it. And yeah. People in the city of Kingston are amazing. Yeah. Well, if, if I have a look at where I lived in Bedzed, you know, that that was middle ring, you know, almost outer ring, you know, South London suburb. Like, you know, if you're talking about a, you know, really progressive development where they literally, you know, they were groundbreaking with with some of the things they implemented into that development. 20 years ago too 20, for the time. 20 years ago. But you wouldn't think, you know, if you think of the equivalent sort of Melbourne suburb that, that, that you would build that and yet it worked, you know. So, you know, I guess it's the old, you know, build it and they will come. Yeah, exactly right. We've had one more question come in. This one's from Vince in Edith Vale. It says, do you know how many houses are empty in Kingston? I guess it means vacant. Vacant, yeah. Unoccupied, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's something that I'm kind of conscious of um, and I think some of my council colleagues are conscious of as well. Um, yeah, when we look at occupancy rates, it doesn't as much typically apply to houses per se. Um, it, it often does apply, however, to, you know, sorts of properties that are, lend themselves more to the investor-type market. Um, you know... I can only sort of look at some of the high-rise um, apartment buildings that we've that we've got. Some of them have been only recently built, but you know when you see uh, you know apartment buildings with you know third a third of the lights off at eight o'clock at night, for instance, you know it does make you sort of scratch your head and and sort of wonder what is the occupancy rate. Um, so they're it, plaguing cities all over the world at the moment. Yeah, so. Uh, we, you know, I've actually asked to look into, you know, what tools do we have at our disposal to try and encourage higher occupancy rates. Um, it's not really straight, straight, uh, straightforward, and I believe, again, what we'd in effect have to do is, you know, try and advocate to the state to to enforce those those tools here. Um, 
but it's something that I'm really aware of. And I, and I think, I guess my answer to it is to say, it kind of comes down to the quality of and the nature of the um, of the developments that we're that we're actually delivering. Um, I would say if you went through Park Life, for instance, um, I can't remember. I think it was sixty odd dwellings from memory, something like that. But I would I would assume that they've got basically a hundred percent occupancy. Oh, absolutely. I so, don't think you'd get away with renting it out on Airbnb in that building. Yeah, so, everyone would know about it. Yeah. So, um, so this I, I think it does come down to, you know, we might not have always the immediate tool to overcome a problem, but we can kind of help massage a solution by just like really good decision making over time. Absolutely. I was well on this topic of homelessness because there are homeless people in the city of Kingston. For a middle ring, it's actually quite um, surprising. Like most people think homeless people are in the, in the city or in, in the city itself. Um, what kind of what current council support services are available um, to help to help deal with homelessness in our community or to support people experiencing homelessness at the moment? Or is that more of a state state and federal um, issue? Oh look, I th- I'd like to think that it's a it's an all levels of government issue, um, and we do have a responsibility at local level because these are our communities. At the end of the day, and um, I, I think it's you know like we want to have a heart, and um, yeah, we want to be close to our community, and you know if, if there's solutions that we can, you know, help make people's lives better, you know, I, th- I think it's really you know. Um, you know, a responsibility of our, us as a council to, to do that. Um, we've got a we, – as a council, we actually have a lot of services in-house where a lot of um, other councils have actually divested of certain services. We at Kingston have typically kept those services, you know, even when they – you know, it's sometimes easy just to, uh, I guess, look at the, the numbers and say, well, it's just not – cost-effective for the council to provide that service any longer. But then you've actually got to look at the service and say, okay, but who is the best person to provide that service or who is the best organisation to provide that service? Who's closest? Who's on the ground first? Yeah. And, and I think if the answer is, well, council, um, it may be that it's not the most cost-effective way always to provide the service, but if we're the ones that are going to actually get the best outcome by providing the service... And so one example of that is we've got a fantastic access care team and I, I'm pretty sure they work out of the Brindisi Street office in Mentone, but um, they work directly um, with people who are homeless throughout Kingston and, you know, I've experienced firsthand them actually being able to achieve really great outcomes and often really quickly That's as well, which is, which is great. Um, and then the other thing is we've actually just in Clorinda um, taken on six of these uh, transportable um, units and we're, we're using that as, you know, um, accommodation, like crisis accommodation for homeless people uh, as, as well. So there are things that we are proactively doing. Um, it's not to say that we can't be doing more. So That's really reassuring to hear. I don't think people often get to know that um, council is doing that. Yeah. And, and we are, as I say, we are somewhat unique i wouldn't say that no other council is doing it um that wouldn't be true but um 
you know, Kingston is quite unique in, in the level of service that we provide. And, and I'm we're, sure we're really proud of that too. <laughs> as I'm sure you appreciate as well that it's not just um, the immediate cost benefit of, of any of these activities, it's the overall social benefit. Yeah. And how it reduces all your other uh, civic maintenance expenditures and all these all these other things that you have to do. Yeah, and that's where I say it's not as straight. Holistic. Yeah, it's not as straightforward a calculation as to say, you know, what's the cost to council and, you know, could we provide this service more cheaply by, you know, getting a third party and that sort of thing. You know, it's sometimes that might, might be the right solution, but, you, you know, you've got to cut your cloth according to the problem. It just can't be a one-size-fits-all approach. Exactly. And with compassion and empathy. Totally. And I think many listeners tonight are really reassured to note that their deputy mayor is passionate about housing and social and affordable housing and sustainability. Um, So I'm sure that's comforting to a lot of listeners and constituents as well. And not just that you save the edgy. <laughs> I'm, I'm mindful of the time and that we've had a few tech difficulties tonight. So uh, we should, we've gone over already and we should start to wrap up. But the last question I want to ask you is what gives you hope? Um, look, there's, there's actually, for one, I tend to be an optimistic person by nature anyway. Um, you know, like uh, going back to save the edgy, I, I just... I knew what we were trying to do was in some ways ridiculous and so many people have tried and failed and whatnot. But, you know, I and the people around me, you know, with the committee were just always, um, you know, resolute and just we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to achieve this. And, and I think you can achieve a lot more with that positive sort of mindset as well. Um, I, I go... There, there are just some great people. Um, you know, Kingston's doing some great work, but there are some great... People, I sit on um, SECA, which is the Southeast Council's Climate Change Alliance. Um, they sort of feed into another body called CASB, um, which is the Council Alliance of Sustainable Building Built Environment. And you know, you just see you know the really clever people, and and you know, with uh, you know just a great approach to to solving these big big problems. Um, and there, look, there are other committees and groups that councils are aligned with as well that sort of sit outside of council. So I, I see all the work of these great people and I think we've got some really uh, great minds, you know, sort of chipping away at all these big problems. And so that's great. Um, the other thing is too, I, I go, um, I'm fortunate enough, you know, being a councillor, you know, you go to a whole load of different events, but I love when we go to school events and you see the, the school kids and, you know, the there's just so many great youth, you know, coming up through the system too, and um, you know, it's and it's it's actually notable too if you actually have a look at the recent um, census data that uh, it was the first time ever that the millennials sort of were equal, it's, you know, to the percentage point as the um, baby boomers, but coming up fast behind them with the Gen Zs as well. So you know, I just think that there's so much. Um, good being done by the young people in our society as well and you know that that in itself gives me great hope for the future thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight chris thank you alana thanks for joining me for another evening of radio architecture with alana rasbash 
This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bunurong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Josie from Space Folk, and when I want to stay groovy, I listen to Radio Caram. <laughs>